0: Welcome to episode three of the Code and Innovation podcast. Today I'm going to be talking to you about architecture and it'll be a ramble as usual, but I'm not just talking about architecture, I'm talking about architecture and the product and the relationship between the two. So what is this A word, architecture? Well the images it conjures tend to be related to big structures and buildings and blueprints and, you know, here we go. This is the output of the thing we're trying to build. It's a huge thing with complexity and measurements and dimensions. And, well, it's software like that. So I have a lot of Agilista friends who have made the case that architecture is a really bad word because we're not building a skyscraper or something with a final end state that is deterministic. You know, we are often evolving software products that don't have a definitive end state. The software is not complete, or you just contract the workout and then you'd be done. You know, the software evolves based on um, understanding f- in the marketplace, understanding how your software is being used, new dynamics, new needs to compete. That's why we have this agility. We try and build software that allows us to discover and learn and move in new directions. So that's great. Um, does that mean we don't need a design because we don't know where we're going? Well, generally we do. Yeah, we know that we're working in some domain. We know we're trying to fix some sort of problem. We know that, well, time goes into building things. So perhaps we should build things that don't involve us having to reinvest the same time and the same learning every time we want to iterate. So we end up you know, coming out with principles about reuse and we think in terms of the bigger picture here and there and I'd be surprised I would be really surprised if someone listening to this, if anyone is listening to this has not seen the tension that exists between thinking for the longer term versus thinking for the shorter term being able to move quickly to Israel now this is where it gets fun that's part of the challenge and There is a trade-off. There are no black and white answers um, as you move forward. Even if I pose a question, what is architecture? You know, each of you may have your own view. There's um, a really great uh, set of books by Simon Brown, which I quite enjoyed some years ago. And and remember the quote, something along the lines, if all um, architecture is design, but not all design is architecture. And I may have misquoted that, but my understanding based on you know what I've just said is that there is a class of sound designs that um, allow you to strategically grow and shape the product you're building. Uh, There'll probably be a bunch of poor designs alongside that. But there's even more to that it, than that. So there are different types of architecture, um, and you see that causing a lot of confusion. You know, you'll find an organisation with an enterprise architect, and sometimes I'd look at the enterprise architect and go, "You're actually a technical architect." And you'd find a BA who's quite involved um, and in in the product process, and understanding you know the bridge between language and um, the concepts in the domain, and you start seeing business architecture creep in. But they defer to the enterprise architect, or you know, whatever it is. There's every organization has its own flux. There's there are models like TOGAF, which are great. Um, they try and help you define what these hats are. You know, things like business architecture and technical architecture. Um, what is the enterprise architecture? And it gives you. They have an ADM, this process, this flow of taking an idea through the different shapes of thinking. Now I'm going to be completely um, open here. Um, I really have little time for organisations which get architecture-heavy, i.e., starting to go through that TOGAF cycle slows things down, and you're building a complexity loop. More people talking to each other, more communication channels, and guess what? Um, I'm hoping I mentioned Conway's law more than the previous ones. If not, Um, It's about the relationship between the communication channels in our organization and what we build. So having worked with some huge blue chips with big architecture teams, I was even invited to sit I sat on an architecture governance board when I was younger at a European bank. And I got to review some people's designs. I found it horrible, horrible, horrible because I felt that these are the people who know what they're building and then years later in 2012 I've actually done a bunch of that um, but in 2012 I was at um, QCon London with a friend of mine we'd given a talk about um, technical debt and you know how we address that at the BBC and I wandered into the architecture stream and they were doing an open space and it was 2011, 2012 but it was, it was an open space which is like you know an, a conference where the participants get to stand in a corner, so this was you know between talks um, big room, imagine a big room, whiteboards in the corners, and you get to pick a whiteboard and put a question on it, and then you just run with it. So I took one, and I ran with it. The question I put up was um, uh, you know, what was it? It was that the architecture function is anti-agile. This was a predominantly agile conference, um, so it really trolled people. Um, I can't quite remember if the intent was to troll, but it was to stimulate conversation. Um, so, What happened was people came and there were different types of architecture there, uh, architects there, and um, you could see solutions architects, and uh, you could see enterprise architects, and I started realizing there was very little between them, except I could see um, enterprise integration patterns in a bunch of uh, people who were more sort of enterprise-y, and I'd see some of them coming out the technical architects, a very few business architects, um, and they were all trying to defend that their role is very important because you need that strategic thinking. So I pushed along the lines of how related are you, how connected are you to what your teams are doing? And what I found was very few of them remained hands-on. There's this concept of ivory tower architects, and um, you may have seen it, or may not have, but essentially it's about preaching down from that high tower as to how things should be without understanding the details and the challenges on the ground. And a traditional problem has been teams of people trying to design at a systems level who are really disconnected from the challenges at the team level. Um, I've been at both ends of that some years ago um i was with a bank where as a senior you know technical coach lead person i was pulled into meetings where we evaluated people's open api designs and there was a lot of navel gazing into domains of expertise that really belonged to those teams or should have belonged to those teams and feedback loops around api design um at really early versions of an API. So people in these teams would have had time to improve, to learn, to um, understand the domain better. But I found a lot of time was going into this process. And I've seen that in the past as well, as I mentioned, you know, prior to that, years and years ago in the European Investment Bank, um, similar exposure. So it frustrates me. And I've been also, you know, a, a solutions architect and a technical coach for teams, which Evolved an emergent solution. And I went through a brief period where I felt it was very important for teams um, to discover their own thing. And it led to chaos. Spotify had that many years ago where they allowed people to do whatever they wanted. And then um, they found they had a plethora of technologies and they tried to define their golden path for what their software and their release processes should look like and their services should look like. So I think there's a general need um, at some stage to have design but in all of that there are individual teams who are trying to meet everyday needs they have challenges such as debt in their code such as um, skills and competencies on their team around testing around um, DevOps around understanding the users and all of these are either you know superpowers or disabilities within said teams and someone or group of people um, that may be setting boundaries on these teams um, would benefit hugely from understanding the real-world challenges there if I'm gonna tell you how to ship code I sure as hell should have shipped code myself and I am lucky because I've been doing this, I've been writing software since childhood and I was just writing a, a Rust-TCP server a little while ago for fun and I still maintain with my teams, and my day contract at the moment involves cutting code and I go up and down the 10,000 foot view and then into the release and into the software itself. Um, And I think these are skills that architects do need. Technical solutions architects should be very clear here. Um, Even enterprise architects to an extent, if I'm going to be dictating uh, an event-driven architecture for a team, I should be there when they're event storming. I should be there in some of the conversations or maybe learning or producing examples um, for said teams um, to be able to see what a good architecture looks like. And... Architecture shouldn't be a career path. I've seen that happen a lot as well, where good engineers get pulled out of engineering into this architecture function, because you know, as someone who's been on that path, it's a hell of a confusing ride as you're trying to evolve as a better engineer. And architecture sometimes seems like one of those directions to go in. Just like many other management things, people who get hands off start regretting it, at least that's what I've seen, or become very poor at what they do. Um, sorry for you' one of those people um, but I'm hoping that there's a level of empathy there if not we agree to disagree or at least I disagree with you um, in a nice nice way however you know there is this need for some empathy some understanding of what um, those teams challenges are now back to Conway's law you know you've got these these big processes I talked about togaf ADM and ramble remember this is a ramble you're here because I ramble um, TOGAF ADM has notions around, you know, the, the business architecture, and it has notions around the systems architecture, technology architecture, um, governance processes, and all of these, you know, form a life cycle which defines a product that's going to be built. And um, you know, they're, they're, even TOGAF are pushing out like an agile iterative approach at the moment. Um, uh, not TOGAF, but the Open Group that published TOGAF. And, you know, even those practices are starting to evolve, but I'm a big proponent for you know emergent architectures, which emerge from the needs of the team when boundaries are set to guide how software evolves in a given direction. Now, things I've used in the past, things like tech radar. So um, ThoughtWorks have a tech radar where they tell you what tools and what methods work. So I did the same within Teams. I had a radar of tools and practices, uh, methods like mob programming or pair programming, tools um, like uh, NLP clients or uh, SASs or you know, front-end libraries or whatever it was um, that had adoption statuses. And these adoption statuses, if you look up the ThoughtWorks one, are things like, hey, we should try this out, trial. Adopt, we've tested it and it works great, reject. Hold or do more experimentation on it, and I've defined um, a journey like that where you try and make sure that as you evaluate something, you understand what it is you're trying to achieve. You know, what are, how are we going to measure? Using um, Angular 4, for instance, with the team uh, which I did many years ago, and there were some questions that we put in up front. Um, similarly, with like some um, uh, Uh, Spark um, SQL stuff, uh, query language stuff, you know, there were questions, hypothesis, what are we going to try and understand and extract from our data? Um, And then you come back and you make sure you have a date and you evaluate with the team, has this met the expectations? Interesting thing is those expectations, if you can think at a more systems level, can also include capabilities the org wants, the capabilities you can see will help us move in the right direction. For instance, if you're a data science company, you might want capabilities around processing large sets of data very rapidly, doing ETL. Maybe you want the capability of being able to um, query streams, or maybe you want the ability to um, uh, have some level of redundancy you know, across uh, data that's flowing through those streams, or whatever it is. These are capabilities in your organization that are valuable make them things you measure against and they start becoming the boundaries and they're not firm boundaries they're kind of like a little you know plasticky line that may move in and out but people are aware as they're experimenting and evolving to be careful how far outside of that they step um, recently someone was interested in this tool i was proposing and i was like you know if, and she asked me what is the best way to to adopt this i said the best way is to do a very little safe experiment in an area you can revert from um, where you can you know back out if need be and try it out try it out with the real team with some real people um, keep the investment low go for a low-risk area of a project and you start making rational choices like that and if you're going to be wearing that a word hat you collaborate to help people make those choices based on your technical expertise and conway's law i am going to go back to that wasn't I? um you have all of these different you know hats, and you have all of this process and you're trying to make everything predictable because you know once you start setting boundaries sometimes you, it's very easy for logical people like ourselves to become very passionate about said boundaries and suddenly we've got process um, and we've got um, different entities so Conway's law talks about the complexity which emerges as you add bureaucracy, essentially, in a sense. Even if that bureaucracy uh, teams and silos of information, you find that to deliver something or to build a software solution, you hop through a bunch of related silos and you make your software unnecessarily complex. Um, This week I went to a talk, um, there's a really great guy called Manuel Pays, who, with a guy called Matthew Skelton, um, probably also really great, some really good talks online, you can watch from the two of them. They did the DevOps topologies pages, and they've got a book called Team Topologies, which I'm a huge fan of. And they talk about um, how, you know, individual teams that uh, exist within our organization can benefit from or from, we can benefit from recognizing that we're giving them real problems, real software to solve. And they're actually just a bunch of people with brains. and that brain set of brains has a finite cognitive load. There's so much it can handle. Yeah, you try and um, cram several master's programs through um, uh, some random kid, probably a really bad analogy. But they're going to stop at some stage and go, whoa, like, you know, this is really interesting stuff, and kids are sponges, so I might be wrong here, but um, you're going to, uh, they'll probably end up in tears, stop it, I'm not ready for calculus yet, I'm four. Um, so similarly, you've got teams, which, uh, this is a ramble, apologies. Uh, Teams which um, are given expertise or given responsibility to own different types of products with different behavior and maybe different interactions with other systems. And eventually you go to them and you're like, you know, tell us about your domain. Are we looking after too many services? BAU teams are really, really, really big on this. But the idea is to recognize that finite brains Let's recognize how big a team is. And he talks about concepts like this thing called the Dunbar's number, Dunbar's number, dude, Dunbar, um, about, you know, how many strong trust, well-trusted or trust-rich relationships, um, high communication relationships can be maintained between people and using that to shape your organization, recognizing capabilities, you know, to help others so they can focus on a smaller, you know, cognitive um, weight um, such as just focusing on the product behavior without having to worry about the whole stack of stuff that sits underneath so he talks about platform teams providing capabilities for organizations and empowerment teams I um, forget the word if it's empowerment or not but you know teams to um, help uh, others along the journey to um, empower the teams and to coach them and to give them um, guidance on that journey because I think coaching is often an overlooked um, uh, superpower in some, you know, slower to move organisations. Enablement team. It's enablement team, not empowerment team, because they enable, and you'll have specialists and tech coaches and lean coaches and DevOps coaches and security champions and all of the great stuff um, to support the teams in building it right and building the right thing as they go. You've got the complicated subsystem team which is um, some capability internally, which probably has some high cognitive load within it, and maybe is an integration broker between different domains. Um, Be careful with those, because I've seen those emerge out of a desire not to be transparent about unnecessary complexity, or recognize that things are not as hard as we want to believe. Data science being um, a prime example of that. I've seen a lot of data science teams which, when you start demystifying them, are not as um, inaccessible as you'd think. Uh, many years ago, I arranged some more programming sessions, really high level, but to get a team, uh, a bunch of teams in a data science heavy company, to actually spread the knowledge around some of the data science technologies, things like Spark, and um, it was it was interesting because I, I, you know, sought feedback from people before and after, and. I think there was this this perception that, you know, this isn't really stuff that's relevant to us. It's probably got a high barrier to entry. And I'm a firm believer that, you know, most engineers or people um, have great learning capacities, um, especially if you're building a team of people with great learning capacities. So I think it's important to, to encourage people to realize that, you know, as long as this is not trampling on your weighting of cognitive load, you know, don't assume it's going to be um, a difficult, uh, soul-crushing, you know, discipline. Data science, perhaps in this case, or you know, um, transformations um, of uh, inbound payloads. These things sound hard. You you have a go, and you demystify Mr. Maybe some of that cognitive load just comes from the fear. And I've seen that often. A new thing. You haven't done it yet, and there's a huge fear around it. Um, That's not to dismiss that it's not important to abstract away um, things that do not necessarily enable the team, but distract them from focusing on building a really sound product. And this takes us to the whole journey. At the end of this is the product. You know, you've got these communication channels, you've got this design, but all of it should be with the end in mind. And that's the people, the people using it, the people receiving what you're going to build. Um, evaluating and creating a feedback loop, so a three-ways model. You know, um, Jin Kim talks about system level optimization, system level um, thinking, system level design. There's a holistic loop there, so if we're going to set boundaries, you know, maybe we're measuring with tooling, we're measuring with other things, but the ultimate measure, the ultimate thing to be optimizing against, is that product we're building, and the value we're delivering to real people, be it our business our, or the user, and I, my, my personal stance is it's the, the, the human consumers that matter at the end of all this. Um, and, you know, you may decide at some stage to abstract that to an interface, uh, but it's always valuable to remember what problem your bit is contributing towards solving. Now, that's been a very long ramble. Um, I appreciate you hanging around, if you did. And there are probably many things I wanted to talk about and didn't, because this is a ramble. So uh, have a good day, night, evening, whatever. And I'll keep pushing these things out. Let me know if you discover it um, at Ficus. Um, help me talk, th- think through some things, remember Togas stuff. And um, yeah, I don't know. I'm going to see you later, aren't I? Have a good day and see you in the next episode of what's this thing called it's called code and innovation